0: The k Up podcast is sponsored by T. row Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. row Price and The Washington Post Brand Studio. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hey,
1: everyone. This is Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Cape Up. Grandma sent me $100 when we broke up with kids dad alone i'm thug i'm not basically white i'm suburban my name is jamal i'm white these are some of the hundreds of thousands of six word stories that are part of the race card project the brainchild of veteran journalist michelle naris former host of npr's all things considered We talk about America's foundational ailment and how race is an integral part of our national discourse.
0: Race is a bright and throbbing vein in America's body politic.
1: This is a great conversation, which we get into by talking about, what else, Black Panther. Michelle Norris, thanks for being on the podcast.
0: I'm so glad to be here.
1: Okay, thank so, you so much. Oh, well, thank you again. So one of the reasons why I was a little late getting downstairs um, to to greet you in the lobby is that I was getting my tickets for Black Panther. I have not seen it yet.
0: Oh, wh- what?
1: I know. I know. I haven't seen it yet, but by the time this episode airs, I will have seen it.
0: Oh, but we, we have to talk about it.
1: Well, no, we're going to talk about okay. it. And, and I want to get into it by asking you, that, should we be surprised— by how wildly successful Black Panther is.
0: No, we should not be surprised by this. Um, I'm not surprised by it. Uh, I I, I wouldn't be surprised if Hollywood is surprised by it. Yeah. But we should not be surprised by it on several levels. It's an excellent film, and people are going to see the film of all colors. Because it's an excellent film. It's a Marvel film. So there's a built-in universe of people who really care about comic book characters and care about the genre. But beyond that, it is a film about agency and excellence at, um, I was going to say at a moment, but that, that there's an audience for that at any time, mm-hmm. but especially right now, I think there is a particular audience for this. And the cast, the story that he's decided to tell, the costumes, the interior lives of these people and the interior narratives in the story, I think all just add up to something that's fairly epic. And also the, the, the way he rolled it out you know, he he kept teasing and kept introducing this. And long before people were introduced to the world of Wakanda on film, you have to remember that there's been a fairly long tail for the Black Panther. So there's a built-in audience of people who've been reading about Wakanda and reading about the Black Panther for years and years. So, no, I'm not surprised.
1: And in, um, in the movie theater where you were, one— what was the makeup of the audience was it predominantly black was it was it mixed 51
0: 49 i saw it um the Thursday before it opened, oh, because well, no, not because yeah, I'm you special. To, you went to a screening. Not because I'm special, because I went to. I said I'm going to support this film and I want to see this film, so I went to. I went online and I bought a big. I purchased a big, huge block of tickets.
1: That's right. I couldn't go. You right. sent me I an sent email. An I was email. so excited. I was like, ah,
0: "Damn, I, we're not just, in town." I didn't even know who I was going to bring along with me. I just thought we're going to go as a nation to go mm-hmm. see this film. Mm-hmm. And I bought a big block of tickets, and then I just, you know reached out to people and said, come with me. So I saw it in Bethesda. Mm -hmm. Um, For your audience, if you don't know much about Bethesda, it is a suburb outside of Washington, D.C. It is not as colorful as Washington, D.C. is. It is fairly homogenous, but it's contiguous to D.C., so the movie theater is often very diverse. On that night, it was extremely diverse. (laughs) And people rolled in um, wearing African garb. Wow. People rolled, there was was one (laughs) brother who rolled in, and he was a little bit, I think he may have been, what was the name of the, the nation in Coming to America? Zamunda?
1: Oh, yeah. I, I don't remember the name, but <laughs> he dressed like that. He
0: thought he brought a ticket to Zamunda or whatever, <laughs> you know, because he rolled in with a crown and a oh, fur stole God. on. But, you know, <laughs> glad he was there. Mm-hmm. Um, there were uh, people of all ages. Um, it was a mixed audience, but it was a, a predominantly black audience, I should say. And, and there was a level of excitement that I've only seen at Star Wars films. You know, where people were that palpably excited about um, not just the film, but what the film obviously represented Mm -hmm. to people.
1: Mm -hmm. And as my mom says, you know, when we're at the movie theater, when there's us Mm -hmm. at at Mm -hmm. the theater... We like to talk back to the screen. Were there people? Was there interaction? Oh yes. with the screen and the go- moviegoers. Yes,
0: yes, but it was you know. Yes, but it was respectful in that no one wanted to miss the dialogue. So sometimes that dialogue is not staccato. People start to say things, and then it starts a whole conversation. And you have to go see the movie two more times to catch what you didn't catch. Mm-hmm. How many times have you seen it? Already? I've only seen it once, but I'm, I'm okay. But by the time this podcast airs, I too will have seen it again.
1: This movie. It's the highest grossing movie ever on a President's Day weekend, if, I, if I, I read that right. And picking up on what you said earlier about how Hollywood is probably surprised by how successful it is, why is Hollywood still surprised by successful movies with black actors in them, do you think?
0: Tony Morrison writes about this notion of seeing the world through the white gaze. And I think that that applies in a very particular way to Hollywood, in, in, in multiple ways. So they produce films that allow the world to see America and and really realities through a white gaze. But they, Hollywood, um, because of its power structure, because of its longstanding traditions, you know, this was talked about in the film, I Am Not Your Negro, and, Mm -hmm. you know, in a very powerful way, they sort of propagate this idea that there is a mythical norm that is built around um, the majority as as present majority culture in America. And um, there is an expectation that a black audience is somewhat ancillary um, and not sort of a, a majority interest in the films that they produce. And so I I think that there is an awakening that's happening in Hollywood, um, and I would include film and television in in producing films that are not necessarily black films. They're just excellent films. Mm-hmm. They're just fan- Moonlight was not a black film. Right. It was just an excellent film that, yes, revolved around a black narrative and had um, a robust audience, a robust support among a black audience. But it was a film that crossed cultures. That crossed boundaries. It was a big hit around the world, as Black Panther will be, as Wrinkle in Time probably will be. Um, and you're seeing that also in television, where, f- where shows like This Is Us, and mm-hmm. Blackish, and now Grownish, um, are are being rewarded with with cross cultural audiences. And yes, there are people who are tuning in because representation matters. Because they, I mean, I know we watch Blackish sometimes, and it's was like, Were you at my house? <laughs> right. Did did you know, right. did you film the conversation we had at breakfast? Really, um, because you see yourselves, and that counts. But people are also tuning in because that show is funny, and because the themes are universal. When when Bo went through postpartum depression, women all over the world related to that. When she's struggling with you know how to juggle. Family and home life and life as a doctor women all over the world relate to the notion that we've always heard the struggle is real Well, the juggle is real, too <laughs> And people relate to that as well
1: um, You mentioned I am not your Negro, which is a documentary about James Baldwin and is uh, produced by Raoul Peck I just want to say that out loud So if anyone hasn't seen it, they really should see it because it like Black Panther it is resonant um, to today's times but, you know, Black Panther actually is, its timing could not be more impeccable in terms of this conversation and, w- and why I invited you here. And that's because of your, your labor of love, the race card project. Um, talk about it. And, ex- and in talking about it, answer this question for me. Why just six words?
0: Well, I I chose six words for a couple of reasons because I knew that people understood the concept. There were all kinds of six word exercises and six word sports, six words Minneapolis. There had been memoirs about six words. I also understood that taking something and refining it, and th- this was the real impetus because it had worked. I'd seen it personally work in my life, even here at the Washington Post when it was in the building that it used to occupy on Fifteenth Street. Um, I was asking people to take on a big toxic topic, and I was afraid if I said, just send me a story, that that would be intimidating. Oh, my God, I have to talk about race? Where where do I start? I was afraid if I gave them, send me a paragraph, that would still be intimidating. I was afraid that if I said, send me one sentence, that they wouldn't really send one sentence, that they would send an essay, and it just wouldn't have any punctuation. (laughs) So I decided... What if we? I only gave them six words? And the reason that I knew six words might work is because when I was in college, I had a professor that taught us that if you have to take on a very difficult story, break it down into something simple, and then you can build it back up. So I still do this when I have something complex to write. I try to figure out what, what is the story in six words. I still hmm. do that. And when I worked here as a reporter in the Washington Post, Don Graham, who was then the publisher, used to float around the newsroom wearing the same blue cardigan day yeah. after day. People used to joke that it was his Mr. Rogers cardigan, um, and it was a term of endearment because it was wonderful to work in a place where the publisher walked the newsroom. Mm-hmm. And knew your name. Yes, yes. And if you were writing for the front page of the paper, particularly if you're writing for the the left hand, the cue head, he would often stop and ask you what you were writing, and if you were too parenthetical, you could talk your way off The front page. So if you're like, it's kind of, it's a little bit of this and it's a little bit of that, and I think I'm going to do this, and he would be gone, and he would probably go to Ben Bradley or Don or 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 Len Downey and say, I don't think she has the story. But if you were writing something and say it was about two people who entered, who were elected to Congress in the same year, and years later they're vying for the speakership, and you could break it down, you could say a classic Cain and Abel tale, classic Cain and Abel tale, six words. He knew you understood the story, and more importantly. You knew you understood this. Mm-hmm.
1: Wow! And so we're talking about the race card project. Where did where did the idea come from?
0: It was a hail mary pass. I'd written um, I'd written a book about my own family's very complex racial legacy. The grace called, of silence. The grace of silence. Thank you. You can say that twice. The grace of silence. Um, in case people want to find it. But I knew when I went out into the world, I was on a thirty five city book tour, and. I knew that I would be talking about race because that's my family story. And I, frankly, Jonathan was afraid hmm. because my, my belief at that time was that no one wanted to talk about race. I just think, didn't think that, that that was a door that they'd want to enter. So I thought I needed something to invite them into that conversation. And, and it started on a Saturday afternoon. I was talking to Melissa Bear, who's been with me since the beginning I, of this project. She was working with me as a researcher. Um, and the team has t- since grown to include Amrit Dillon and, and Adrian Kinlock. But in the beginning, it was just the two of us. We were talking about how we would do this. And, and I said, why don't we do it in six words? Why don't we print out postcards and ask people to send us their six-word stories? And you're familiar with the, our, the geography of Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. I went to the Kinko's on Wisconsin Avenue near the Red Door <laughs> Salon, and and printed two hundred cards, mm-hmm. and and to my surprise, a large percentage of them came back to me, and then I realized, okay, wait a minute, I'm on to something because
1: how did you you just handed them out to people? I handed or them out where you know wherever I, you were on and, your book tour, and, and
0: frankly, at the beginning, it was primarily people I know because the first stops in the book tour we were here in Washington, D.C., and there were places in New York and places where I knew people. But after that first set came back, I went and I printed more cards. I talked my publisher into printing more cards, and then I started just dropping cards wherever I went. So I'd go to the Miami Book, Fo- Book Fair, and I left cards. I'd leave cards at the airport. I'd leave cards hmm. at the hotel. And cards just started—people th- people actually sent postcards. Now, I'm I'm the daughter of postal workers, so— The idea that I would reach for postcards, I guess, is not all that unusual. I mean, the Postal Service is sort of in my DNA in some ways. Um, But people did it. And then over time, it jumped into a social media space, and that's when the footprint became truly large and, and actually global. People started sending in cards from overseas. And the wonderful thing, Jonathan, is that it grew organically, that we didn't push it into the social media space at that time. I was barely on Twitter. I didn't pay a lot of attention to Facebook, but people found it, and more importantly, found an avenue to share their own stories. And so my I, I built this on a mistake. Hmm. I built this on the idea that no one wanted to talk about race, and I was wrong.
1: And what, yes, what you discovered was that everybody wants to talk about race from their own, from their own perspective.
0: Without judgment.
1: Right, and that's the key thing, without judgment.
0: And, and, and that's hard because if you go to the website, and the, the website is, and I'm sorry if this sounds like an infomercial, but if you're listening to go the right conversation, ahead. you might want to check it out. It's theracecardproject.com. And, and if you go there, I guarantee you will be offended. And that's, you know, it's unusual to invite someone to walk in a room where they're going to be offended. But it's an, it is an honest Conversation about race. What it does is represent people telling their truths and their truth might not be your truth. Right. And so we post things that come from people that, you know, if you heard that in conversation, you would be offended. You might sh- whip your head around and yet we post them because we want to help people understand the conversation that's percolating in America in private spaces. And that conversation is usually less polite. It's usually a little bit more honest. Um, that candor... You know, if you really want to understand what people are saying at the dinner table, in the barbershop, in the locker room, in the you know, on the golf course, you have to just take a deep breath. But I guarantee you that you will also find some things that you agree with and some things that will make you laugh and lots of things that will make you think. And you will come away with a better understanding of America's cultural DNA.
1: You know, it's it, the key thing you said there was that the Race Card Project is a place where people can Talk about their truths in six words without judgment. And for me, I've always said that the the one thing that um, America is missing when it comes to its overall racial conversation is trust. And you can't get trust unless you are willing to suspend judgment and just let the person talk. I'm wondering if you've noticed. Uh, in the postcards that have come back and the twitter traffic and the facebook traffic and everything if there if patterns have emerged whether mm-hmm. patterns mm-hmm. in terms of geography patterns in terms of are more women sending cards back than men ethnicity are you finding that you're hearing more from say latinos than african americans or are white people the ones who are sending in if i mean if you can tell from the postcard
0: Well, you know, now they come in digitally. We still get postcards. Mm -hmm. And I love postcards because, and I have a few that we can talk about at some point because I brought some in. So you can see the wonder of, you know, seeing people tell their stories Mm -hmm. in their own way, in their own hand. There's something beautiful about seeing someone's handwriting or seeing their thought process when they cross out certain words or how they adorn their cards. Most of the cards, though, come in digitally now. And um, and though I miss postcards, it's a lot easier to yeah. handle <laughs> yeah. um, the archive when the cards come in digitally. So we are at the point now that we've archived so many cards over eight years that we are able to actually engage in some deep dive analysis. And we're just at the point.
1: How many cards we've, in digital you've got? We have officially
0: gotten. archived more than 250,000 cards. Wow. But when you have that large a data set, you can actually do some interesting analysis. And as we've grown and Sort of muscled up in the project. We're now at the point that we can do some, you know, some fairly interesting social science around this to, you know, to understand those patterns that you're asking about. Broadly, we're able to see and understand some of the patterns that have come in the inbox, um, just in the stories that come in. So, you asked, you know, who do the cards come from? From the beginning, the majority of the cards came from white Americans, which huh. again, another surprise for me. Oh, wow. I created this thinking that most of the cards would come from people of color, because most conversations about race are by foreign, about people of color. I was wrong again. Now, maybe it's because I worked for NPR for so many years and it was sort of a reflection of the audience. I, I don't know that, though. I do know that I have never been engaged in a conversation or any kind of media project around race that had that degree of buy-in from white Americans. Mm-hmm. and And white Americans from all over. I mean, the cards were coming in from towns in Wyoming that we'd never heard of and places in South Dakota that I'd never heard of, even though I grew up in neighboring Minnesota. You know, it it was interesting to try to figure out how people found us. And then there are thematic stories that come up. Know where are you really from? Mm-hmm. Um, you're pretty for a dark-skinned girl. You know, several versions of that card, which means lots of people are asking that question, saying that, or, ask, or making that statement. Um, and lots of people are hearing it. And often from people that they're very close to. It's not just strangers that are saying it to them. Uh, A lot of cards about parentage, you know, about parenting children, parenting children across color lines. A lot of cards about adoption. Um, A lot of cards about the black male experience and the currency of fear and what that does to black men and how they respond to it, um, how they suppress it, how it shapes who they are in a public space. And so... I invite people when they go to um, the website, there's a search area, like a search function, and you can put in interesting words, and some of the words you might put in uh, wouldn't be surprising in terms of a conversation around race, like fear, like judgment, Mm -hmm. like assumption, like skin, but you can put in words that, like sky, or teacup, Hmm. or flower. I mean, just throw any word in there. And what's interesting is the data set is so big now that all kinds of stories will fall in your, your timeline that show how race and ethnicity and culture collide with just life in all kinds of interesting ways.
1: So in these, in, in these comments, I, I was tooling around on the website, some people just give you six words. And some people give you six words and then you click on the six words and then there's a whole story. So for one, for instance, KB from Washington, D.C., she submitted this by Twitter and she just gave you six words. She's an African-American woman, at least by the picture. And it says, I'm not basically white, comma, I'm suburban looked at the words, I look at her, and I'm trying to figure out what's going on here. And I think I've got it. But I want to hear from you what you think.
0: Well, see, I I love those cards. Mm -hmm. I I love all the cards. (laughs) Let me (laughs) say that. But I, I love the cards that come in with essays. But I also like the cards that invite you in and make you think, right? Because what is she trying to say? Is she trying to say that people make certain assumptions about her because she has a suburban address? Is she trying to say that because she lives in a suburb, she's in a subset of a cohort called black? You know, you have to kind of lean in a little bit. And in doing that, you have to think. So someone else sent in a card, no, you cannot call me Annie. And it was a black woman. And because of Twitter, sometimes I can hit people on Twitter. And I often reach into the inbox and mm-hmm. call people to get further stories. And I wanted to know what what's the story there. And someone couldn't pronounce her name. And so he just said, I'll just call you Annie. And she's like, no. And that reminded me of another six words. Can't pronounce my name? Try harder. Right. You know? <laughs> um, and the six-word story that I often use when I lecture or teach is grandma sent $100 when we broke up.
1: Wow. Okay. Okay. You got to give the, the back grandma. Well, you know,
0: different. I don't oh. know. That card came from Seguin, Texas, and that place where actually I went and I lectured and I, I wasn't sure if I really connected to the audience. And um, and then the inbox filled in with, filled up with all these really interesting cards from a uh, university in Seguin, right outside of San Antonio. And that was one of them. And you wonder, is Grandma, okay, did Grandma send, why'd she send $100? Was it because she was really glad, glad he's gone? Here's $100. Or was it, you know, she broke your heart. Here's $100. Go out, go out and do something for yourself. Oh. You don't know, right? You, no, you don't. So the ambiguity in the cards, I think, is is something wonderful, and that's part of race, also. I mean, you you understand, interpret, absorb, define race based on your own life experience, right? And so you could, you know, different people, even if you knew the backstory, would still have different interpretations of the cards. But those cards really make you you think, and sometimes it's almost like a whole novella in just six words.
1: So. Uh the Race Card Project was a part of NPR, the stories you would do, these beautiful stories on NPR. And the one, they're all beautiful, but the one that as soon as I saw it, I was like, oh, I must listen to this, <laughs> was one the was one that? called White Jamal.
0: Oh, yeah. My name is Jamal. Right. I'm white. Yeah. Uh, Jamal's story was, was fascinating. I remember when his first, um, when his story first came in and he, he did send in a backstory and he'd actually blogged about this on a poetry site. So he'd actually written about it. But when we talked to him, we learned all kinds of interesting things about him. He's a white man named Jamal. Um, his parents named him Jamal. He's not sure they like Jamal Wilkes, a former Laker. So he thinks that's maybe how he got his name, but he grew up in a commune, uh, or actually grew up in a, in a rural part of, of Oregon, near a commune, and so he went to school with kids who had all kinds of unusual names, Deja and Sunshine, and he said there were two rainbows in his class. Mm -hmm. But all throughout life, when people see his name, they make assumptions about him. So when he travels, he is always pulled aside for extra screening. And when he's pulled aside, he said, when he travels overseas in particular, he's usually in a room with someone named Khalil and Mohammed and, you know, lots of people who have traditional Arabic names. And their screening usually takes much longer than his because when TSA or whoever the security apparatus is shows up and sees that he's a white guy who now lives in Iowa, they're like, okay, go on your way. When you go out to restaurants with friends and everyone throws a card on the table and you're giving the bill. And if he's in a group of, you know, a mixed, racially mixed group, The card that has his name on it never comes back to him. They'll always hand the card that says Jamal to To the black black guy guy. named Chris, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And the way he got his job is interesting, Jonathan. He was hired by someone in Des Moines, Iowa, who wasn't looking to hire another teacher. But um, Des Moines is actually fairly diverse. And at the high school, there was a diverse population, and they don't have a lot of diversity in their teaching core. And the principal came across a resume um, from a young man named Jamal who counted Muhammad Ali as his greatest hero and liked basketball and said he'd be willing to coach basketball. And so the teacher said, well, we could sure use a basketball coach and he might be a great role model, for, especially for the young black men who live in Des Moines who don't see very many black teachers. And Jamal says he walked into... The prince, you know the area, the ante room right outside the principal's right. office, right. and there's always a certain and the
1: little secretary yeah, sitting little, right there. And
0: she's, you know who she is. She yep. has a little candy dish, mm-hmm. you know, on her desk. Glasses he on, the, yes, on the, the, chain. Chain. Yeah, the chain. Yes, yep. yes. Although we're stereotyping, so we should stop that. <laughs> <laughs> we are sorry. But uh, he walked in, and she looked down over, looked up over her glasses, and saw him. And he said, "Hello, my name is Jamal." And she, "Oh, I thought you would be," and she says, uh, "Taller." <laughs> yeah, like, <just> like, <laughs> reach with them for straws. the straws, yep. yes. And you know, and it it turned out that he brought a different kind of diversity to the school. They thought they were hiring someone of color to bring diversity, and he, you know, he is not a man of color, but he grew up in Oregon on a um, in a rural part of Oregon near near a commune and, you know, near a llama ranch and has traveled the world. And he brought—he truly brought diversity, just not the kind that they were looking for.
1: Another one that was interesting was the one from Victor Vega from Los Angeles, Being Brown Makes Me Look Hood. Mm. And he then goes through and talks about all the things— um, you know what's in his jacket. That's what I think when I see a picture of mine taken from several years back. If a white person was wearing street attire, one might think he's cool, trendy. But when it's Mark Zuckerberg,
0: right, exactly, wears, or he used to wear. He doesn't wear his hoodie anymore. Yeah, but he because used to
1: wear. somebody told him don't wear the hoodie. I don't know anymore. why he
0: doesn't, but he used to, you know. He, no, he, he, yeah, he, he did. He rode to the top of Facebook wearing a
1: hoodie. Yeah. Um, so there's that. There was the the story that you did on NPR. Um, it says, "When I have kids, I'm dad. Mm-hmm. When I'm alone, I'm a thug." Yeah, or, so, kids,
0: I, dad, alone, I'm a thug. Yeah, that's Mark Quarles.
1: That was an amazing story. Yeah,
0: we did that in two parts. We we needed we needed a longer stretch to really tell his story because it was so multi layered. Yeah, Mark lives in Northern California in an affluent suburb of San Francisco, and he um, has two kids. His wife is German and Caucasian, and when they're with him, people can look at that family tableau and they can easily do the math and figure it out. Golden children, brown-skinned man with long dreadlocks, white wife with brown hair. Okay, they're the family. His wife is German and they go to Germany for a big stretch of time every summer and she brings the kids so that they can see their family in, you know, um, in Europe. And so he's without his family for a big stretch right. of time. Right, he stays every year. behind. He stays behind. Um, he is a medical technician. He works, you know, at hospital. He's got a great job. They actually own two homes in this community. Live in one, rent one. And he says his summers, you know, he navigates the world in a very different way, because when they just see him at the coffee shop or they just see him at the hardware store, they can't do the calculus and figure out how he fits in the in the area he doesn't have his sort of passport or his protective shield of his white wife and multi-cul- multicultural children. And he says he's treated, he's treated quite differently. And he was, he was really honest about that and about, you know, the conflict. He moved into the second house and the neighbor had a mother-in-law whose purse went missing.
1: Yeah, that, uh, t- yes, keep going because this story just blew my mind.
0: Well, the, the, you know, the purse went missing and um, I think it was on the first or the second day they moved in. And the police came to the door and said, I'm, you know, I'm here because... And he said "You could tell even the police officers, like, why am I here? But the police officer knocked on the door and said, your neighbor has reported a missing purse, and I have to come and ask you about it. And not a missing person, but a missing purse. And they're still unpacking teacups and all kinds of things. And he says, you know, you can come and look for it, but I don't... The purse isn't here. And later on, the neighbor confided in him that he'd called the police officer, called the police, because... They'd moved in and the purse had gone missing and he didn't actually connect the dots, but he said, I'm sorry, man, that I called the police on you. And they found the purse. You know, it was an older woman who just misplaced her purse. In that, in in the the house, house where, in her own house. You know, so you have to ask yourself all kinds of questions. When he had a neighbor of color, why did he assume that the purse, which goes missing all the time, might have fallen into the hands of the neighbor that had moved in? Interesting thing about this story, two two notes that I will um, share with you. When the story ran, his neighborhood was a buzz about this. Um, he lives in Northern California. They're served by KQED, one of the best
1: oh, yeah. uh, no, stations so they, in the country. They were listening.
0: Very large listenership. And so they all heard it. And some were very uncomfortable. Some said, thank you for, for t- telling the story. But there was a lot of discomfort in his community. And he sat down and talked to his neighbors. And they wound up having a deep, and rich conversation that might not have been possible, you know, without him telling a story. And we're really proud of that. It reminds me of something. If you follow Eve Ewing on Twitter, she goes by the Twitter handle Wikipedia Brown, which is one of the best mm-hmm. Twitter handles ever. <laughs> um, and, um, and she's a poet and a scholar. And she, she said something once that I always hold on to it. It makes me think of the work we do on this project. You have to tell your story because someone out there might need to hear it. And it's an example of how that community needed to hear his story so they could actually have a conversation that might not have been possible. The other thing I'll share with you is Mark has, as I noted, has long dreadlocks. Um, he has two beautiful kids. And he said that he will not allow his son to wear dreadlocks. Hmm. And Yes, is that
1: to protect his son.
0: Hypocrisy, maybe? Is that, you know, what, what is gives? It, He's is got... It,
1: but, but is it hypocritical when you, when you see how you're treated and you desperately, as a parent, don't want your own child treated that way?
0: Well, see, you, you just, you channeled him because that's what he said. He said he only grew his dreadlocks. He, was, he served time in the military. He got his degree. He, you know, found a foundation of success before he decided to grow his dreadlocks. And he said, I want my son... have that first Mm -hmm. before society decides to put him in a box based on what his hair looks like.
1: What's interesting about the the conversations that he had with his neighbors, why can't we as a, a nation have those kinds of conversations? Is it because we don't trust each other as a nation? Or is it really that the work of of all of this racial conversation that president clinton tried to have back in the back in the 90s that it can't be national that it has to be intensely local
0: i think you hit the nail right on the head um, a national conversation is wonderful i think we have that all the time through cable television and through public radio and through the washington post the pages of the washington post and the podcast of the washington post that happens sort of buttressed by media in some ways, and by politicians, and by movies like Black Panther and cultural events. But the most productive conversations around race are probably the ones you never hear, because they happen in really private spaces. They happen in the break room. They happen in the teacher's lounge. They happen in the gymnasium. They happen on the side of the soccer field, you know, where parents are standing cheering on their kids or they don't happen. And I think we look for proxies for those conversations, and we think that because you've participated in a Twitter chat, or because you did diversity training at your job, or because mm. you know, your church had a forum, um, okay, check that box. And this is something that's ongoing, and I, you know, I, I, it, it's hard to do. If it were easier, more people would do it. And mm-hmm. I think it requires um, perhaps a different kind of frame around this. So diversity, conversations around diversity, around race, um, they don't have to be the sort of eat your peas, you must do this because it's required. Do it because you're curious. you know. Do it because you want to know your community. Do it because you want to know your coworkers. I mean, especially in places where you're all in a space where you're supposed to be rowing in the same direction right. and rowing together. And if you're not, um, do it because you want to understand life as lived by somebody else. And you want to educate yourself in some other ways. Perhaps we have to figure out how to incentivize it. You know, in a business space, um, we don't talk enough about this large body of research that shows that companies and organizations that manifest diversity are usually more productive. They are more profitable. They um, have higher retention rates. I mean, there there is a case to be made for inclusion, and we often don't make that case. So if you're not in a company, if you're just a, an individual human being, um, what's the incentive there? You know, and especially at a moment where we are facing large divides, where you um, sometimes will face a problem in your own community if you reach out to the other side. Uh, so how do you incentivize it at a moment where... There's there's no upside for some communities in trying to reach out and understand what life is like for someone else. I was else. just
1: about to ask you because I'm thinking, you know, what kind of impact does a President Trump, does an event, a shocking event like Charlottesville, the rhetoric around DACA, what does that do to the conversations that are happening when it comes to race? Well,
0: there those. Everything you mentioned is catalytic, you know, in terms of the conversations around race. They, they fuel those conversations. How do they fuel those conversations is the question. Do they change the tone of the conversation? I guess you could say yes. Um, do they bring more people to the table or do they bring them to the table on opposite sides? And do they, do they make us all more polarized perhaps? Um, you could make a strong argument in that case. Um, they surface things. They don't necessarily introduce new ideas, only introduce new ideas. In some cases they do, but they also surface things. I mean, what you're seeing, what you saw in Charlottesville, as horrible as that was, is not something that is new. That's something that has been with us for years and decades. Um, The reaction to Donald Trump at some of the rallies where people were yelling epithets and people were... Um, you know, treating people of color quite badly at some of his rallies. the The dialogue that he has sort of introduced into political culture is not new. I mean, I invite you to go back and and, and I'm not saying he is, um, you know, an acolyte of George Wallace, but I am saying oh, yeah. that you see, you know, that his his campaign rhetoric is redolent of what you saw in a George Wallace campaign. George Wallace's own
1: daughter, Peggy Wallace Kennedy, says said, has said has, that. Has, has has said said that. that.
0: Yeah. So. You know, it's not something that's necessarily new. Um, The surfacing of these things might make us uncomfortable. But it's possible then to understand, and it goes to why I post things that make us uncomfortable. It helps us understand that race is a bright and throbbing vein in America's body politic. And that to understand America, you have to understand its racial dimensions, and you have to understand its racial history, and you have to understand the reality of race today. And, you know, we're sitting in a newsroom. Do we do that? Or do we treat the race beat as this sort of separate thing? Um, Do we ask the question, was race involved in this, as opposed to how was race involved in this? You know, when we cover politics— are we honest about the role of race in american electoral politics do we shy away from the word racist you know it's a hard word it's a, and that's a you know that will stop a career cold mm-hmm. i mean there's so there's real peril real peril in engaging in these conversations and and i understand why people are sometimes afraid to do this but it requires will and it requires courage and it requires the ability to be uncomfortable.
1: Two things that folks uh, probably don't know about you, Uh one, you're married to Broderick Johnson, who is a two-time Cape upper. <laughs> um, so I've been working very hard to try to, to get even, the whole family yes, in. Okay, we have three in. kids.
0: You might get the you know you might have to one by one bring them in too. <laughs> <laughs> and
1: the other thing is, you love games. Yeah, I do. Um,
0: and you know that. And I know me. that
1: we we have spent two New Year's <laughs> Eves together, and let the. One New Year's Eve ago, you, what was the name of that game? Where it, I've been calling it. It's like a black version. Black card of, revoked. That's it. It's like a black Trivial Pursuit and Cards Against yeah. Humanity, yes. where you're yes. like crying. Yeah, it is it's, so it's funny. It's very
0: fun, and it's now a show on BET. That's right. I mean, <laughs> Deborah Lee played game. it and called her folks at BT and said. This would make a great game show, and then and now it's a game show on, on BT. We we do play card. I love card games. Mm-hmm. Um, I love games. I like card games. I like board games in particular. I met Broderick playing games. We were literally we were playing categories. That's how that is how we met one night <laughs> at a game a game night at my house where we had people in various rooms playing different games. So yeah, I'm a big board game player
1: as well. Who approached whom?
0: I actually interviewed Broderick for a story I was doing for the Washington Post on Nelson Mandela, and um, several months later called a mutual friend and said, that guy I interviewed, we're doing a game night. We were doing a game night together. I, brought a, I pulled together a number of women, many of whom worked at the Post at the time, mm-hmm. and Kevin pulled together a bunch of guys, and I said, I Invite your friend Broderick. And he did. <laughs> <laughs> and Broderick was really smart. He could hold his own, you know, on, on board game night.
1: Michelle Nars. Former reporter with The Washington Post, former host of NPR's All Things Considered, creator of The Race Card Project, and author of The Grace of Silence. Thank you very much for being here.
0: Glad to be here. Honored.
1: Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. Hi, I'm Mike Rosenwald, a reporter here at The Washington Post. I'm hosting a new daily podcast called Retropod. It's a show about the past rediscovered. Every weekday morning, we'll explore some of history's most dramatic moments, I'll introduce you to colorful characters from our past. Forgotten heroes, overlooked villains, dreamers, explorers, world changers. Check it out on your Amazon Echo, Google Home, or your favorite podcast player. For instructions on how to listen, visit WashingtonPost.com slash Retropod. The Washington 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 Post. Hi, I'm Jimmy Kimmel, and I'm here with Jeff Edgers to do his podcast, Edge of Fame. It's a collaboration between WBUR and The Washington Post. I've always wanted to be involved in a collaboration between WBUR and The Washington Post ever since I was a baby. Edge of Fame, before, behind, and beyond the spotlight. Subscribe to Edge of Fame wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by ZipRecruiter, offering technology to help you find candidates that match your job qualifications.